Thomas, welcome. Great to be here. Uh, anything interesting you want to share with us? Anything interesting happening in China we should know about? Well, a lot of things have happened the last couple of days. So I thought we haven't really spoken in depth about China for a while with so many things happening in right. Russia, Ukraine, nuclear scare, Iran, and so on. But this is a really good opportunity. So let's dwell on this a little bit today. Um, before we get there, just this morning, we saw this uh, piece of news from the Netherlands about uh, Chinese police having actually legal stations, police stations in the Netherlands and apparently 21 other countries. So look around your neighborhoods, you know, it could be that uh, you're stopped somewhere. Sorry, sir, you know, your legal parking here is a ticket. You should have faced uh, Chairman Xi Jinping and you didn't uh, with your car. And you, and you think it's... And you think it's the police, except normally where it would say police, there's something written in Chinese. Right. Exactly. exactly. Looks like a police officer, sounds like a police officer, but is identifying themselves in Chinese and perhaps instead of your native or Correct. own language. It shows how naive we have been in the last, say, 30 years or so, uh, allowing this Hydra to grow and grow so deeply into our society. Sweet. Do realize about the elite captures by the Kremlin. Of course, we spoke at length about us here, but the United Front, China's United Front, a sheer number of people involved and has done a much better job. And there's a lot to do to, to unpack that. Um, this is not exactly what I want to talk to about. However, this phenomenon is very well described in a book. <laughs> Sorry, it came out about two years ago by one Australian and one German. Um, the researcher, Clive Hamilton and Marike Olbert. Um, this is unfortunately a German version, Die Lautlose Eroberung, so Silent Conquest. In English, it's Hidden End, can be found on uh, on Amazon. So these are the, the authors, Clive Hamilton and Marike Olbert. Um, she works for Marshall Fund in uh, Germany, and he had been unpacking the problem of Chinese infiltration into Australian body politic for many years and uh, largely thanks to his research, things have been cleaned up in, in recent years. So I just, uh, before you go on, I just put a link to the book at Amazon. Yeah. So if you're interested in the book, click there. And, and I would also say, you know, you may find it in your local library. So uh, that's another great source for, don't, yeah. don't get my book at the library, buy it. But someone else's book, you know. Yeah. And this one is over, you know, I think a year or a year and a half old. Yeah. So. Um, shouldn't be a problem finding this in English as well. And I think in other languages as well, it's available. It, it's an illustration how wrong we got Deng Xiaoping. We, by this I mean the media, the Western world, uh, the business, the Wall Street, uh, BDI, you know, the, the Bundesverband der Deutschen Industrie, so the biggest lobby, European industrial lobby in Germany. Um, I think we read into that transformation what we wanted to read. That's always the problem of our beliefs. We don't really believe what we see, but we see what we already believe. And that's exactly what happened with that transformation uh, 30 years ago. Deng Xiaoping proposed four cardinal principles. So Xi Xiang, Ben, Yuanzi. And if you listen to them and forget about everything else, what are those four principles? Well, we are very well reminded of them 
at the party congress in the last two weeks. The first principle was is stick to the socialist road. Number two, the um, uh, dictatorship of proletariat. Number three, the leading position of the Communist Party, in this case, Communist Party of China, CCP. And number four, ideologically, the dominance of Marxism-Leninism, which used to be called Mao Zedong thought. Now, in addition to this, we have now Xi Jinping thought. So, despite all the hopes of capitalists who clutched on, onto other, you know, sayings and proverbs that Deng Xiaoping uh, threw in, you might remember the famous black cat and white cat, right? It doesn't matter as long as it catches a stupid capitalist um, and who will give us is capital, technology, uh, trade access, and protect the trade routes with their taxpayer money, right? That, that's, that's what it was all about. The communist system essentially relies on six uh, elements. And we had a fantastic illustration of this over the weekend with Hu Jintao's uh, removal from the room. Now, I'm going to dwell on this for a moment because it will illustrate one of those six pillars. The first pillar is, of course, the Communist Party itself. Vladimir Putin grew up as an apparatchik of the Communist Party and right. the state apparatus as well. But remember that the party is above the apparatus. The party penetrates all the vital factors in your life, everything from the economy. So there's a lot of presence of the party in the economy. That's obvious, of course, in, in China. It's even the case in North Korea. You might have some women running small shops, but it's going to be always subjugated to the heavy duty communist behemoths that represent entire sectors or dominate entire sectors, which are vital for the survival of the party at the helm of the, of the society. The educational system, of course, you know, the vital different professional guilds and crafts and so on. So that's number one. Number two, coercion. But before you go on, just to illustrate that, make, you know, I'm going to ask this question maybe for everybody. Mm. In the U.S., we have people here from Europe and Canada, too, but I think the analogy will still hold. In the U.S., we say country party, meaning Republican or Democrat, because we're currently a two-party system. And you're saying in, the, in China, it's party country. Okay, so... There are actually three elements. Mm -hmm. uh, we are used to, a, in, at least in nation states, as we know them since 17th century, in the European Western context, to those two elements, nation and state. And the, in the state, there are a number of different institutions of which parties are among those institutions, right? Yeah. Like in the yeah. US, they're critically basically electoral vehicles. Yeah. Uh, they perform different roles in parliamentary systems, of course. So they have a certain assigned role as, you know, different pressure groups and, and other organizations and institutions as well. And then there is bureaucracy that serve them as they, as they arrive, you know, clinch power through yeah. the electoral process and so on. So that's, that's what it is. Nation and state with its institutions. In a dictatorship, in a tyranny about which we talk here, there are three levels. There is the nation or some idea of a nation that's more problematic for multinational uh, is states or unities, which means that, of course, you need to have a narrative that somehow shows the superiority of one over the other. We spoke about the Ruskin Mir in the, in the Soviet and Russian context now, uh, you know, the Iranization of Iranian uh, minorities, it's the case. And of course, the Han 
uh, jingoism, chauvinism over other uh, people, very numerous, numbering millions of people within P PRCs yeah. is, a, is a classic case thereof. Okay, so we have a nation, then above this you have a state, and in those communist countries, you have the 40 above the state. So you have three levels. In fact, sometimes you have four levels because as in the case of Mao Zedong and currently Xi Jinping, there is this one person on top of the party um, that exercises absolute power over the party structure, right? So there's actually the fourth level, but it's not always the case because they undergo different transformations and there's always succession problems and so on. So oh, it's in, in the case where there's that, that, personality at the top. I'm going to use a religious term. I don't mean it religiously though, but it's like they're a prophet or I'm asking, is it like they're a prophet? Well, it reflects, it reflects a sort of a nature, tribal nature of the human being. Mm -hmm. Think about any activity, as long as there is a leadership or of Max Weber described with charismatic leader, people tend to coalesce around that person. We yeah. have that uh, phenomenon very, we still have in the United States very recently. But, you know, Krishnamurti, an you know, Indian intellectual in the 20th century, um, spoke broadly about it. People who seek enlightenment, even who seek enlightenment through meditation, through just seeking to through the spiritual aspect of being developed and built, even they fall into this trap, into guru mania, right? They yeah. start following a guru. Yeah. Krishnamurti, on multiple occasions, refused to be someone's guru. He said, that's not what it is, but that's the natural tendency. And so even, even when we're, when our goal is something introspective, we still look for a guru outside of ourselves which is completely paradoxical. You have to do a lot of internal work to, to deprive yourself of that tendency. Mm -hmm. And of course, those regimes exploit that natural tribal tendency yeah. to have this, you know, this, this, as you call profit, right? So that's, that's, that's the structure of the party above the state, right? The second thing is coercion, the coercive power, uh, which is common to those, you know, at least those three regimes that we discuss here on a weekly basis. And they have multiple different, different tools to do this and uh, to exercise the coercive power more now than before, thanks to technological progress, unfortunately, right? Especially that types of technologies that benefit hugely from accumulation of data. So artificial yes. intelligence is, is, an, is an example thereof, right? So more tools now than ever in the past, you know, in the past, if you watched, uh, I think three versions of Orwell's 1984, it was some kind of TV watching your yeah. home. Uh, they don't have to do it anymore. It's much better with, you know, with these devices. From yes. yes. So that's, that's the second one. So that usually prevents you from doing certain things, either because of outright prohibition or because of your anticipation of the prohibition and what you exercise is self-censorship. It doesn't have to be, for example, in China proper. When I mentioned the, the Netherlands, um, you know, I have an example of educational uh, facilities in the West, including Cambridge University and some universities in, in the U.S. that just wouldn't publish things that are, uh, you know, frowned upon by the, by the Chinese Communist Party, right? Some self-censorship goes very far. Then the third one is propaganda. And so this is a positive message of some kind of, you know, message to different groups, some, somewhat different, but very important. And those four cardinal uh, principles of uh, Deng Xiaoping are still maintained as a sort of basis of the, of the propaganda. Then the fourth element is that throughout the periods of 
the exercise of power by a communist party, you have cycles of tightening and relaxation. Tightening and relaxation it has something to do with succession and different personalities that are there is something to do with various mistakes because there is no corrective mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. As long as someone is in power, that's the big problem that the markets have now with Xi Jinping's um, ultimate concentration of power, that without self-correcting mechanism, the economy will just go completely off the rails because there's nobody to, to, to hem it in, nobody to bring the real message. Everybody will be co-tallying and, and trying to position themselves for the next chapter once he's too old or, or, or retires, right? So, so, but there are those cycles and there were the, you know, in, in, in Soviet Union and in Soviet, uh, Soviet satellites and in China as well. And I think we've just come, not overnight, but something that's been brewing for about a decade to the end of the era of opening. And interestingly enough, China itself has a bit of a history of that long before Marxist-Leninism won over in the 20th century. Of, of more of the opening and less of the opening. So that's is that, is that the, the cycles of op more opening, less opening, is it purely opportunistic and transactional on the Chinese side? It's to our advantage to be open until it's not. And then it we always, it always has to be perceived as someone's advantage mm -hmm. uh, uh, for, for the system. And the good example is of course, the last 30 years where you accumulate and so much in, in, in assets and flows um, as, as possible to retain power, to, to yeah. stay in power. And um, there is a very interesting ideologue uh, by the name of Wang Huning, who up until last week was number four in the standing committee. And he's the one who actually is still in the standing committee. Hmm. Wang Huning uniquely is not just the Xi Jinping's uh, hand. Uh, he's someone who crafted the ideology of the two previous uh, party secretaries, Jiang Zemin, the famous and infamous three representatives, then subsequently were introduced into the party's constitution. And then the scientific development for harmonious society that Hu Jintao introduced. He, his IQ is probably way above the others. This is a little bit of Alexander Dugin was in the government of Russia, right? He's not. Uh, Wang Hun is, and I think Washington Post called him last year the most dangerous man on the planet. Mm. I read his work from late 80s and early 90s, so before he entered Zhongnan Hai, so to say this Chinese Kremlin, after which it's impossible to read anything. We don't know exactly what he professes, but his, his view was very interesting coming to, to your question, is that he was afraid that those cycles of opening bring modernization, and he wanted to secure socialism against the forces of, of globalization in general. Mm. He recognized the vulnerability uh, of the Chinese culture to Western cultural hegemony. And you know, what do you do to, to stop this? No. So first he went, almost like 100 years ago, a lot of uh, Chinese intellectuals went to Japan. I mean, he didn't physically go to Japan, but he was drawing on the Japanese uh, example of collectivism. It's in yeah. Japanese, is Shudang Shui. In Chinese, is Jiu one character is different. That's that's actually borrowing how Japan managed to realize modernization without becoming Western. Right? The Japanese society is very strong, very very self-defined as Japanese because of its geography and history. Something that very mixed, uh, ethnically mixed Chinese society can never really afford. Um, but he was looking at, at at ways to make sure that liberal democracy is not inevitable. 
for the sake of party survival with some measure of modernization. So his, his view was that there is a permanent tension between the software of values, traditional values, and somehow modernized values. And what you have to do is to re-engineer top-down the society. So this is the party's role, re-engineer the society to create a new political culture on top of this traditional culture, right? And whatever of modern culture has penetrated the society to retain the Marxist structure. So let me ask a question here. I know sometimes I throw you like a a curveball. This might be one of them. As you're describing this fear of liberal democracy, what comes to mind for me is it's viewed as a virus. Like if it gets in, it spreads. Does that so far make sense? Yes, except um, the Chinese communists have better vaccines against this virus than against COVID. Well, and the next thing I was going to say is, is there any kind of parallel to draw between this overall sort of philosophical view of the world and no COVID policy, zero COVID policy? Um, yeah, there may be. Let me, let me just draw on, 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 on the metaphor I used. What is this vaccine that the Chinese communists have? Mm-hmm. Indeed, it's the same vaccine that communists around the world have used. It's nationalism. We usually think of nationalism something that's used by only right-wing dictatorships because of the internationalist narrative that, that mm. pervaded early communism and, and, and Leninism. But if you look at the history, whether it's Cuba or Vietnam or North Korea or Soviet Russia or China, in Soviet Russia, we've also with cycles because there were cycles yeah. of Russification and the cycles of, you know, when suddenly the entire effort was necessary as during Hitler's invasion. But nationalism is a very significant element of communism that allows the authorities to protect the population against that virus by pointing out that the virus came from overseas. It's against you. It's against your identity. By the way, the same narratives used against uh, the Wuhan virus. Right. According to the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese people believe in this, it came from the United States. Sometimes from Italy, sometimes from Australia, but especially from the United States. And certainly not China. No, it would have never been. How possible, right? I mean, we're absolutely pure. And don't forget, Xi Jinping took full responsibility for control of the virus during the first two weeks of of its outbreak in Wuhan. Which means, of course, that person on top of the party, which is on top of the state, which is on top of the nation or nations, empire in this case, cannot make any mistakes, right? It's just, right. It's, he's infallible. So you can never walk back and hence the disastrous COVID policy by the Wuhan is under lockdown again as we, as we speak. So cycles of tightening and, and relaxation, that's number four. Number five is factionalism within the party. Why is there factionalism? Well, because one of natural thing for, for people, you know, we are social beings, but we also socially disagree, right? You and I disagree on music. It's a natural thing. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, yeah, you prefer Liberace and Kenny G and Arms for Sun Ryan and Henry Shredgill. That's, That's right. a natural thing. Of course, the communists disagree on a lot more things. But the, 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 the truth is, factionalism is, has been, in the Chinese Communist Party, a very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fact of life. And it's a, it, 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 the infighting was not just between personalities, was between factions, and only within factions was between personalities. And some of the leaders, 
took a long time to consolidate power because of this factionalism. For Jiang Zemin, so two chairman back, it took about six years. And then once he consolidated power, he was really reluctant to relinquish it. So he actually stayed on top of the uh, Chinese military commission during the first two years of Hu Jintao's mm. uh, was called presidency. Although the actual presidency of the country is, is, is less important than the chairmanship of the party. Uh, uh, Hu Jintao actually never consolidated his, his power sufficiently. He came from the, from the youth uh, league faction. Uh, Xi Jinping probably took him days. This is what he's good at. This is what he's good at. He's not good at economy. He doesn't seem to be interested in this anymore than Putin is. He, he's not good at diplomacy, hence will for your diplomacy, right? This, this basically shouting and barking from the rooftops at all countries around the world. It doesn't necessarily win China many friends. He doesn't seem to get it, right? This autistic attitude to, to the outside world. Uh, he doesn't seem to be particularly good at um, whether it's international relations or any, you know, technologies or the way how he conceives of technological development in a closed system that's that's also probably very detrimental to, to progress. Uh, he's good at one thing, factionalism and the fights within this Leninist party, that he's better than Mao Zedong. And that we saw with a great shock last weekend. I say shock because as much as we expected the worst, every time, naturally, as we expect the worst, we kind of hope, there's a flicker of hope that just being very pessimistic, we'll be nicely surprised. Please, please, please make it not the worst. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the worst happened. This is like February 24th in a, you know, Putin invasion of February. We, we kind of saw that coming, but we didn't want to believe it was yes. real. The decision of Xi Jinping to stuff the entire standing committee with his yes man, it's something that Mao Zedong could never afford. He never had that sort of a power. Mm. This, we should all understand, has durably, in foreseeable future, changed our lives. Our lives as consumers, as investors, as citizens, as travelers, as member of the free democratic societies. Um, there, there's this, this is now a, a, a straight line towards just pure decision-making by one man. We know how we all are fallible when there's just one person deciding that's exactly what he did by consolidating power. This is what he's good at. So factionalism is basically for now dead. We could go into detail about it, but there's, this, I want to speak about the sixth one because this is where we had an interesting illustration over the weekend and the sixth element of the communist power. It's purges, purges, cleansing, cleaning up. I mentioned Jiang Zemin. Well, Jiang Zemin created the Shanghai uh, faction in the 90s. Why could he do it? Because uh, Deng Xiaoping was still alive. In this opening, without political opening or democratization, uh, there was a need to, to, to modernize the state. Hence, people such as Zhuang Ji, who was the premier, of China, Li Ruihan, or, or, or Li Keqiang, who was actually prime minister, still is until next March, although no longer in, in the party uh, top structure. Uh, so they brought a lot of economists, they brought a lot of even Western educated uh, professionals, technocrats into the party. Uh, and that gave a little bit of space for people who are not sons 
of important communists from the first generation to grab more power. And if you were from a very you know, throbbing, growing city, such as Shanghai, um, you had a lot of chance to actually accumulate a lot of a lot of power. That was the case of Jiang Zemin. Well, guess what? Jiang Zemin was not even invited uh, for the party congress. And he one of his power bases was the, let's call it police. So the uh, Public Security Bureau. The Public Security Bureau underwent a massive purge about a month ago, two months ago, with two of the top guys sentenced to death, two of the Jiang Zemin people, and one, I think, for um, for uh, lifetime uh, imprisonment. So Jiang Zemin faction gone. Hu Jintao represents another faction, the Youth League faction. Actually, Hu Jintao was the one who was pushing uh, for Xi Jinping's uh, leadership you know, years ago, before 2013, uh, against the you know, un- anointed um, candidates from Jiang Zemin's faction. But Hu Jintao, as I mentioned, never really had that power. So before we get to the details of what happened with him, let me just say one thing about purges. How the purges are executed in the Communist Party depends a little bit on the cultural characteristics on which the Marxist-Leninist organization is grafted. So it's very different in Soviet Russia and it's very different in Communist China. In Soviet Russia, when someone transgressed or had to be pushed away, eliminated this way or another, that person just simply vanished overnight like that. It's gone. You don't see them anymore. Finished. Uh, old pictures are doctored, and we're talking about pre-digital. <laughs> yeah. And basically, the, the, the person disappears not only physically murdered somewhere, you know, either in Lubyanka in Moscow or in Vorkuta, Magadan, or somewhere else in, in the Far East or deep Siberia, but the memory of that person is also completely wiped out, never existed. All the documents, all the party documents, all the state documents are written to remove that person. And you could do it with everybody, everybody, except, of course, the founder of the system, which is Lenin. You could never repudiate Lenin. The moment you repudiate Lenin, the entire house of cards collapsed yes. because it's part of your ideology. That's, that's the original prophet, right? There's that Moses who was there for all of us uh, with the lighthouse. So that's the Soviet Russian way. Well, one question before you go on. In this scenario of disappearing the person, what about their family? Often disappear as well. Hmm. Yeah, often disappear as well. The, uh, what we mentioned at the beginning about the Dutch case, what does this police really do other than giving you park tickets? Uh, they, they, they clutch Chinese dissidents or, or, or Chinese citizens or former Chinese citizens who live there and who do not cult out to the Chinese Communist Party and that's somewhat public, I don't know, whether it's university or some other institution so on. And they tell them, you know, you should actually go back to the country. Oh, beautiful parents you have there. It would be a shame if something happened to them. Mafia. That's what it is. And, you know, a lot of people actually do fly back yeah. In this case. So before you go on, I want to ask one other question. And I'm, I'm actually just throwing this out. I don't, I don't think you necessarily should answer it today, but it might be something we pick up in another show. Um, this whole idea of, of disappearing people reminds me of, and so I'm asking you if my 
analogy is correct. It reminds me of what is called cancel culture in the West today. Is that is cancel culture some form of disappearing people? Is it a purge? Well, cancel culture it seeks to make certain themes and certain topics disappear. Yeah. The fact that someone professes these ideas and is wiped out from whatever salons, it's, it's almost of secondary nature. Here we speak about what the regime fears for its own security, for its own survival. Yeah. So picking up specifically on, on persons and, and, and physically and not only physically making them disappear. But so, I mean, people, people in the West get, yeah, it's ideas. And yeah, I, I, I agree. I, yeah, there, there is, there is some, there is some correspondence to it. And I think it's a very, it's, a, it's, it's a very worrisome uh, element in our public sphere that just so many topics become completely off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Off, off, off site, right? You're not allowed to, to broach them. Yeah. Um, but so let's, let's just compare Soviet style purges with the Chinese style purges, because there's something that's exactly the opposite about the way the Chinese did it. And that goes back to the history of how you did executions in China. It was always public. Now, medieval executions in Europe were also public, but that survived into the communist system. So you don't just only kill the person and its family. You don't banish them from the memory. First, you have to shame them publicly. Hmm. If you can actually find a lot of footage from the great proletarian re cultural revolution of the 1960s until lasted until 1975 or six, depends how you count. And, and then you see a lot of professors and other intellectuals being paraded in front of crowd running amok, you know, shouting for blood and, you know, their heads are being uh, lowered and they're basically exposed to, to shouting and spitting and you know, all the calumnies before they being carried away either back to jail or to execution, right? Yes. So you always in China, you do this first because it's, um, it's, it's, it means is the face, right? So losing face is the worst thing that can happen. This is worse in the Chinese culture than actually physical demise, mm. just, just destruction of your, of your, of your social standing, social political standing here. And there's a long history of, uh, leaders, Chinese communist leaders, even who are disgraced in this fashion at each, you know, I mentioned the periods, this, the cycles of tightening and, and, and relaxing, uh, there, there were the cultural revolution is the best known because it's the most recent, but there were two other campaigns that Mao Zedong uh, ran as a sort of laboratory, social laboratory over Chinese people's heads. Um, first was the anti-rightist movement in, in the forties, early fifties, and then the, the great famine, the great leap forward. Mm. Right? And after the great leap forward, there was a bit of reconning by the communist party. As I mentioned, Mao was not as powerful within the communist party as Xi Jinping is right now. And there was this general, very decorated general, his name was Peng Dehuai. And he, he said, you know, that we should actually just, just review what happened and, and he was destroyed. He was destroyed precisely in this manner, in a public manner. Then during the Karsha Revolution, several he, he was destroyed because he had the raised, Yes, because he raised an issue against Mao Zedong's decision making, right? Publicly at a question. At a, he questioned the ultimate question, authority. The rationale of the past failed policy. 
right? Yes. Yeah, another person like this classic is the prime minister, Yu Shaoqi, who was also disgraced during the Cultural Revolution and, and thrown into jail, eventually died. And he too was paraded regularly before, yeah. you know, he physically uh, disintegrated in front of those, those crowds. Zhao Jiang, you know, there's another period, uh, Tiananmen, right? He appears in front of Tiananmen with Yang Wenjiabao next to him. There are pictures of this. Disappeared. Um, there was maybe less shaming here. And so you could look at the Hu Jintao event, regardless of what actually triggered this. However, whatever triggered, whether those really red folders that everybody's focusing on, we're now, was there? This is speculate. Yeah, let, let me help everyone out here. We're now talking about something that happened not in history, but three days ago. Yes. At the, at the, at the communist party. This is, we're now talking about the present. Yeah. So Hu Jintao, the former uh, president and chairman of the communist party was led in front of the cameras out, uh, out of the, uh, of the Congress. Uh, and he was reluctant to be removed. He actually opposes this. You now he's, He's a frail old man, 79 years old. That's a lot in China if you eat their food and smoke their <laughs> cigarettes. But um, there is, you know, there is speculation why, whether she wanted to see the list of people, actually all of his people, including Li Keqiang and Wan Yang and Hu Chenghua and so on, they have been um, sidelined. They are no longer in, among the leadership of the Communist Party. So he had reasons to be upset. His own son, who was also a rising star, has been eliminated. He was in the room, by the way, watching him mm. being removed. So given that everything in the Communist Party is heavily scripted, and unfortunately, having worked at the World Economic Forum with senior Chinese communist officials, I know how scripted it is to the minute millimeter. This is, this is the worst protocol you can work with anybody. So it's unlikely that it was entirely improvised. But even assuming that it was improvised because he did something that would potentially lead to I don't know, disagreement? Would he vote against the list? Because you, yeah. it's not really a voting. It's a, it's, 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 it's a vote of confidence. So acclamation. Everybody raises a hand for the entire list. And the entire list, of course, is prepared uh, by Xi Jinping right you know, before. Whether he was unhappy was on the list, wanted to see it, whether it was on a fear that some cameras will focus on it and see it before the official announcement, whatever it was, I'm referring only to the way he was moved away. That was hugely humiliating with nobody, uh, if, if it was really a health issue, nobody helping them, nobody really reacting, everybody's stone faced. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this. This is the end of the Youth League faction as we knew it, which was in power for 10 years in China. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really good to illustrate this sixth um, um, pillar of the Communist Party. Let me just repeat them. The first one is the the overwhelming role of the party within the entire structure of the society, including the economy, so much for capitalism, managed capitalism. The second one is coercion, coercive power and all the tools that, that the party has and that uses the state to deploy them. The third one is propaganda. Then you have those cycles of tightening and relaxation, factionalism, and finally the purges, right? But now the factions are essentially gone. And there's a lot of other things that are gone with this you know, earthquake, as I said, that affects all of us because there was a certain predictability about the way the Chinese system functioned. There was some kind of internal governance. And this is all gone. We already know, we've known for five years that the term limits are gone. 
for the chairman. So the chairman stays. That's one thing that's gone. Meritocracy is gone. If you look at detail at those um, seven people who are, who are, who are there on top, uh, they're not qualified to be there, with the exception of the philosopher, Wang Huning, probably. And that's why he's so, his longevity is way above everybody else. Um, we could call him Eminence Grise uh, in French, which means power behind the throne, because he's the one who creates the ideology. But Eminence Grise, you might have noticed one change. Eminence Grise actually means gray power. Um, he's the only one on, still with ink all over his hurting. It does seem that everybody else in the, in the standing committee is now following Xi Jinping's leadership and allows some white hair to come out. That was not the case in the previous standing committee. So maybe they're running out of ink. You know, there is an economic crisis in, in China or whatever is happening. The look of this is a little bit different. Before, it was difficult to even tell them apart. They were just so similar in the color of the hair. So meritocracy is gone. You know, Ding Xueqing, who's potentially the future successor because he's the youngest in the group. Um, he's just a portal. He's, he's definitely not qualified to be there. Uh, the age limits are gone. The head of the Chinese military commission is 72, and he's staying because his dad and Xi Jinping's dad were buddies. So he's staying, uh, preparing you know, invasion of Taiwan. He, so that's, that's an important role. Um, people who are way below the, the, the age limits, they're gone, um, including one young. And, of course, we have this... Uh, issue of succession now, which will plague the system for the next, whatever, five or 10 years and so on. So one generation has been decapitated, generation which has been groomed by the two previous, it's called President Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, they are nowhere to be seen. They're only Xi Jinping's yes men. And remember, peaceful transfer of power, it's not something that China has learned in the last 4,000 years, and definitely the Marxist-Leninist system has not taught them either. Think just about Soviet Russia, right? Why were the sections of power? Either because the leader died or because he was kicked out, like Malenkov, Khrushchev, or Gorbachev eventually, right? Well, the same thing in China with one exception. Hu Jintao was actually the one that handed over power to, uh, to Xi Jinping. And that, uh, after this short parenthesis, that system of predictability is gone. So we are into a very, very unstable time of very heavily consolidated power. By the way, those differences between different communist things, I want to introduce another book, um, which also speaks about purges and other things um, that came in the 1990s. Again, this is in a different language, happens to be in French. Le Livre Noir de Communisme, which means a black book of communism by a number of different, um, different uh, authors. Highly, highly recommend it. A bit thick, but useful uh, if you have an interest in a specific country, specific communist tyranny. Uh, this is definitely worth digging into. Um, um, unveils a lot of kind of inner, inner workings of, of, of those systems. Um, let, me, let me pop in here for one sec. Both of the links I uh, print, put there for these books, these are editions of the books in English. So if you're interested, go check them out. The Black Book of Communism, by the way, uh, I didn't spend a lot of time looking, but I think it sells for about $50. So it's like textbook priced. Again, you know, if you're interested and don't want to invest $50 in the Black Book of Communism, there's a good chance there's a source online or at your local library or some other library where you can do a land or an ebook or something like that. So mm -hmm. I want to make sure, make sure everybody knows that these books are available in English 
and probably through a variety of channels. And talking about investment, it's probably better to invest in this book than in Chinese stocks right now. <laughs> the, market, the market has been in panic since, since Monday, uh, simply because of what Xi Jinping has already done to destroy several sectors, the tech sector, the consumer tech sector, number one, number two, the educational, private education sector, and in some of the delivery sectors. And also because he brought his number two, Li Chang. So this was, this was kind of a hallmark of that reshuffle. This is a guy who's responsible for the utter disaster of COVID response in Shanghai earlier this year, right? We've seen it, we've seen the videos, we've seen the hunger, we've seen the despair in what was promoted as one of those global great cities, right? And now it's just simply a great part of the, of, of the dictatorship. Very unlikely that we'll see any change in terms of a COVID policy, uh, which Li Chang is possibly the next premier. He's not an economist, so that's not what he's good at. It's important to look at what these people are good at. You know, these are Xi Jinping himself is a chemical engineer. Others uh, majored in literature or language or agriculture. Uh, politics, something like this, no economists, no PhDs, actually the, the smartest people in the Central Committee, who they're one of whom I know personally, I work with him, Guo Shuqing, top-notch, you know, guy, partly U.S. educated, he's sidelined, uh, Yigang, the PBOC chairman, he's probably going to go. Um, instead, we have people who are experts in what? Military technology, weaponry development, nuclear technology. Mm -hmm space programs, airspace programs, public health, things like this. That's telling you exactly more or less where the priorities lie for this new leadership. I'm hoping that next week we can continue this conversation. And, and you mentioned this early on and you've touched on it, but I think there's a lot more we can talk about. Um, you know, you said early on, this is going to affect our lives for the next 10 years. And I just feel like there's so much more that could be said about that. Can we make that a priority next week? Yes, we do, because we promised before this watershed event in Beijing to speak about the U.S. reaction to this. Yes. You know, the October 7 crackdown on technological flows between us and China. That will affect us and the devices we're using, for example, to connect here. Um, the electric cars you're buying or not, a, a lot of other things in relation to Taiwan, U.S., and so far we just focus on the internal issues in China. But there's a lot to be said and a lot to be, uh, you know, I shudder, but uh, predicted or foreseen over the next uh, couple of years. And it's, it's a different world in which we, since last weekend, uh, waking up. So it's a, it's a bit like February 24th is the way it feels. Mm. Mm. And I don't mean to trivialize all this, but I am going to say one of my takeaways from what you've been saying today and a headline I saw, I think, yesterday is hang on to your iPhone. Yeah. It may not be so easy or affordable to get a replacement for a while. Uh, and, and when I say iPhone, I'm using that as a archetype for a whole universe of products that we take for granted. At a, at a ridiculously affordable price. Right. You know, this is just one of the ways. Yeah, or the 16th t-shirt, right? Um, that's, that's, yes. that's really an issue. I think Anna's asking a good question. Europe, there is a great litmus test. Chancellor Schultz is scheduled to fly to Beijing and to be the first 
Western leader to meet with Xi Jinping since COVID. So almost first time in three years. He's torn between two sets of pressures. One is from Washington for Europe to toe the line, for Germany to wean themselves off Huawei, for example, uh, the way other countries did, who are, which are more amenable to cave to US pressure, like Romania or Poland, right? Germany is a little different scale. But the second pressure comes from BDI, so Bundesverband der Deutsche Industrie, that is the industrial lobby, the German industrial lobby. And they don't want the change in their system, mm. in their supply system, in their market access in China. They want nothing of this. Meanwhile, the trade balance with China is has been deteriorating for Germany for two reasons. First, because of copying of the German technologies, uh, that has, much of which has been transferred to China. And secondly, because of the dual circulation system, which is as if the prep for future war, for future conflict with the West, where China wants to avoid Russia's problems and kind of prepare and have a core of its economy that's independent of trade with the West. So mm -hmm. the trade with Belt and Road Initiative countries and the trade with Southeast Asia, arguably some of these overlap, is this now larger than trade with US and uh, Europe. So we'll see how that plays out. And it's important to watch, you know, what message Scholz actually brings to, to Beijing and with what message uh, he will come back. I don't know exactly when this trip is, but this is this, this will be an important mark for for Europe's direction, what it actually means. Mm. All right. We're going to pick it up there next week.